Welcome, Welcome to the East, to the East Dramacast. Dramacast. This program is brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Check out the awesome educational content at east.org, including our sister podcast, CareerCast. You can find East Minutes on our YouTube channel and follow all the latest news on Twitter at East underscore trauma. Now, on to the TraumaCast. Hello, this is Lauren Dudas, a trauma and acute care surgeon from West Virginia University. Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Humanetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the newly renamed Educational Resources Committee and TraumaCast. Last month, we had the joy of an in-person meeting in Austin, Texas at the East 35th Annual Scientific Assembly. In this first of a two-part series, you'll hear from our outgoing president, Dr. Jeff Claridge, and a rather random selection of other speakers at the meeting. I'll introduce our hosts, then jump right into the interviews. For those of you who couldn't make it, I hope this makes you feel right at home at the meeting. Hello, I am Samantha Terrace, an assistant professor at Wayne State University in Detroit. I practice acute care surgery at Detroit Receiving Hospital. My name is Megan Quintana, and I am an assistant professor at George Washington University. My name is Tatiana Cardenas, and I'm a trauma acute care surgeon at Dell Medical School, University of Texas in Austin. Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Valdez, and I currently work as a trauma and acute care surgeon at Ohio State University. I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Claridge, our outgoing East president, just after he handed off the gavel. So, Dr. Claridge, thanks so much for meeting with me. My privilege. So uh, my first question is, uh, what sea creature would you say you are? Dolphin. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure there'll be disappointed otter fans out there. So on a more serious note, last year, Dr. Hout had discussed, or excuse me, two years ago, Dr. Hout had discussed the role of past president and um, what you play on the nominating committee and how that would play, you know, a big part of what he did the next year. What are your plans for this upcoming year? I don't know if I've given it that much thought, um, to be honest with you. It's to have a really successful meeting next year. I think we worked hard to prioritize rejuvenating people's souls this year, getting them to the meeting, and I I think we proved that we had an amazing meeting. Yes, Uh, absolutely. I don't want to be biased, but I think this year's meeting was phenomenal. Yeah, I think we all were very excited to be in person again, too. So, I definitely plan on staying very involved in the organization, and that was kind of one of my commitments when I was very interested in the job and the position mm-hmm. um, it was kind of committing to long-term involvement in the East, not just disappearing. So in your presidential address, you talked about how saying yes is powerful, but that you also have to be selective. How do you choose, you know, one of the questions our listeners often have is time management when you're in such um, prominent roles like yours. And how do you really select what you should say yes to and what you need to table and reconsider next time? So, you know, we talk about this a lot and it does change as you go on throughout your career. First of all, you can always take time to reflect. Let me think on that. Thank you for the offer. Again, kind of take the yes in and then think on it and come back to it another time. Mm -hmm. Have mentors that you can run these ideas past. Is this a good idea? Should I be involved in this? 
some of my junior partners come up to me and say, hey, I was asked to do X and Y. What are your thoughts on that? I do the same with people that I know. So that's what I would recommend. Go get some advice. But also take some time and, and kind of map out what you want to accomplish in the next three to five year plans. Mm-hmm. And go back and look at that and say, does this match within this? If it does, then it's a yes. Mm-hmm. If it's something outside of that, then you got to pause and say, is this going to take me away from my goal or is this a new opportunity that I'm really interested in? Yeah. That would be my advice. Has there ever been an opportunity that you said no to because at the time it didn't seem right and you regretted not being able to take that opportunity? Uh, no, there hasn't been, I don't think. But I, what I have been upset about a couple of times is other people thought I was too busy Yeah. and they said, no, he wouldn't be interested. Hmm. And so I think that's an important message to get out there. Make sure people understand, hey, let me make that choice. Yeah. If I say no, I'll find someone else to do it or I'll help you with it or I'll, uh, I'll turn it to a yes some way. That's a really uh, good point. What are your hopes for East over the next five years? I really think East should continue to grow. I think it can be the most influential organization in the world for trauma. So another thing that was very prominent in your term as president and your presidential address was discussing gun violence and uh, pandemic. (laughs) Obviously, these are kind of topics that are, are nationally big deals. How do you think East should try to address those as an organization? I think East has to stay with it from uh, data and science, but hopefully, like I said in my address, and hopefully we can see that here in the future, teach us how to advocate and how to affect change at levels that we need to influence. Mm -hmm. East can't take the podium at this at a national stage, other than providing data and evidence that you see at this meeting. Um, But we can learn the tool sets and how to become better advocates at the state, the local, and the national level. Yeah. What do you think will be your, has been your most impactful move this past year? One, having the meeting, without doubt. That was a very difficult decision that we spent daily data, uh, you know, looking at who's coming, who's not, who's canceling, mm-hmm. talking to people. Um, so I think having a meeting was a huge thing. I think the bylaws changed to get it more modernized so that people who have different careers to start still have an opportunity for leadership mm-hmm. uh, and changing kind of the, the ageism to kind of use terms like instead of young, early career, Mm -hmm. uh, but still keeping with the the mission of East. So I think that was a big deal. That started 10 years ago, and it didn't go well then, but we were able to put that through this year, and then having the meeting. I know as the East president, you get the opportunity to attend, I guess, virtually or in person, multiple meetings on behalf of East, and what has been your favorite opportunity this year? Uh, Getting to know other colleagues. I think that's a great thing, And, and seeing people that we haven't seen in a while and being able to touch base with them. It's been fantastic. As a skier, I missed the opportunity to go to West, so I started, you know, Western Association uh, for the Surgery Trauma, but uh, hopefully in the future. <laughs> and then, uh, last question. Um, have you solicited any agents for your rapping career? <laughs> uh, no, and, and I don't think people realize what a stretch that was for me personally. <laughs> I refused to karaoke. I mean, I, like, I will not do it. So that was a huge stretch for me, and, but I had fun doing it, and, and hopefully others had fun. For some context, at the end of the presidential address, uh, Dr. Claire wrapped We Are a Trauma Center with lots of meaningful little phrases in there. So it's been my pleasure to talk to you. I'm so thank happy you. I got to meet you, and thank you for your year. Thank you. I've had the great opportunity today of joining the East Leadership Development Workshop. It's a workshop we do the day before the meeting starts. It's a series of lectures and conversations about leadership, both inside and outside of our organization. It's a program that runs for three years, so each year is a different uh, workshop. Today, I had the opportunity to listen to Dr. Disanayaka present on 
how do you run a profitable division in the business of trauma? It's phenomenal. I, I can't possibly sum up uh, the entire conversation in 30 seconds, but I wanted to give you a chance to just explain to us, like, why did you get interested in the business of trauma, the money of trauma, and then for those of us who want to get better at it, how do we get better at it? So I think, uh, as I mentioned, I'm the daughter of two accountants, so I think it's in my blood to understand deeply that there's no mission without a margin. And if we want to be effective as leaders, and if we want to advocate for our trauma patients, most importantly, we have to understand the money. And I don't think we can go on the naive assumption that by appealing to people's better natures and saying, you need to give us this money because we're saving all these injured children, that that's going to work in the long term. We have to speak the language of accountancy and finance. We have to understand the concepts. And we have to, in today's healthcare environment, find ways to fulfill our mission while being at least financially neutral, if not hopefully actually sustaining a profit. That's how we make our mission sustainable. On that note then, should trauma surgeons get yet another degree? Should we all be MBAs or, or accountants? Well, that's a trick question because you know my feeling on that. So absolutely not. It is way too expensive a way to get the nuts and bolts that you need. There are so many online courses now, uh, both in person and online, but in COVID times, it's very helpful to have this online, that really for just a few hundred dollars, you can get the language that you need. And that's probably the most important thing. Do you know what a contribution margin is? Do you understand how to read a profit and loss spreadsheet? So two things. One, educate oneself online, and two, speak to the people who are MBAs and MHAs and have them explain this to you in your own institution. If you do those two things, I believe you have the tools you need. We're all smart people if we're trauma surgeons. We can figure out the rest. We just need those basics to be given to us in a fairly easy-to-digest fashion, uh, and I think that's all we really need. Great. Thank you so much for presenting today. And for anybody listening, if you're interested in hearing more, uh, sign up for the leadership development course. It's the Tuesday before the meeting every year. We just had the wellness session, which was entitled Active Wellness, Taking Control of Your Well-Being. I'm here with another one of our uh, speakers, Snanha Bhatt, uh, who presented on Psychological Capital. Um, if you could just tell us where you're from and kind of summarize your talk. Awesome. Hey guys, I'm Snehan. I am um, from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Parkland in Dallas, Texas, and had the opportunity to talk a little bit about psychological capital and also positive intelligence and mental fitness today. So, um, you know, I think there's so much going on in the world currently that it's great to be able to take a step back and think a little bit more about positive psychology and whether that is PSYCAP specifically and, you know, finding the hero within, looking at what opportunities we can utilize to develop certain skills and certain components that will optimize our ability to, um, you know, become a more well-rounded person and potentially even focus on kind of the, the positive aspects of our um, our mentality and our well-being rather than trying to, you know, diagnose and, and potentially create a, a negative or trying to find pathology. One of the really exciting topics that I have a lot of interest in is positive intelligence. And that also just, you know, really gives you the opportunity to take some time for mindfulness, really listening to what is going on in your brain and identifying when your brain starts creating these negative thought processes or what we call saboteur thoughts. When you can recognize them, then you can take the time to actually intercept those thoughts and hopefully 
turn adversity or turn these negative thoughts into a more positive or what we call sage process. And when you can utilize these sage powers, when you can try to turn it into a more positive concept, treat an adversity as a potential positive, then we actually found that we utilize completely different neural pathways. And as we strengthen those neural pathways that are associated with these positive emotions and positive thoughts, hopefully we can learn to default to them. And so, you know, I think we spend a lot of time, hopefully, or you know, at least we, we know we should spend a lot of time with physical fitness and, and trying to take the time to, to exercise and include physical fitness in our daily well-being. But hopefully as we become more aware of the concept of positive psychology and positive intelligence and mental fitness, hopefully we can incorporate that into our daily lives as well. Yeah, I was very fascinated by the topic of mental fitness. Can you kind of explain what kind of, you know, we all know about like physical fitness and activities and exercises we can do. What are some of the things that we can do to help with our mental fitness? Absolutely. I think the biggest thing is just incorporating in some way, shape or form mindfulness into your daily practice. So taking the time to really take a a couple of minutes to really become in tune with your own thoughts. And again, as you understand your thoughts better and as you can um, isolate those that are potentially negative or harmful, you can really start to optimize those that are positive and can maybe, you know, help you. And again, as you become more intentional in the beginning about this, it starts to become more natural in the long run and you tend to default to these more positive thoughts. I think one more uh, key concept for me as I'm learning more and more about this is taking the time to be truly present, even in the little things that we do every day. I feel like with COVID and with the pandemic, it is so easy to just put yourself on autopilot. And next thing you know, four days have passed, five days have passed. So I think even just take a minute if you're going grocery shopping, just just really like feel yourself in that moment, appreciate what's around you. And I think it, it also helps kind of bring in that whole aspect of gratitude and practicing gratitude for the little things that, you know, we sometimes take for granted. Yeah, I call those the, I sit in the car a few minutes before I either get out to go in the house or go into the building or wherever and kind of, uh, you know, try and think about the thoughts for the day. So again, very grateful uh, to have this chance to talk to you and enjoyed your talk immensely. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm here with Dr. Mary Bryant, Chief General Surgical Resident at UNC. Um, She just presented a fabulous talk on the outcomes of incarcerated patients in the setting of emergency general surgery and trauma care. First of all, congratulations. And tell me a little bit about why uh, your interest got peaked in this patient population. Sure. So I think it goes without saying that most people in university-affiliated hospitals are going to encounter incarcerated patients. And so I think what I saw as a resident before I started my dedicated research time was that these patients were frequently being seen back in the emergency department. They had different policies that govern their care. And I just became more interested in learning what were the surgical outcomes of these patients and, and what care could they receive at correctional facilities and what care did they need to come to us for. And that really sparked a literature review in which case I found almost nothing when it came to surgical literature. And so that really was a, just a huge gap in the surgical literature and we were behind a lot of other specialties like infectious diseases which had done you know a decent job within the past decade of really trying to fill that gap in literature. Awesome and can you give me a take-home message with regards to what you presented and um, your recommendations for us? Sure. So our study, which was a multi-institutional study across 
12 centers across the United States with varying hospital affiliations with their jail and prison systems. And what we found were that these patients, while less likely to be seen in an outpatient follow-up setting, were about one in five patients were seen back in the emergency department and had a, a higher rate of readmission versus what is seen in EGS and trauma patients that are non-incarcerated. So I think it sort of brings to light the need for further research on this population um, and also understanding how we can better improve their discharge planning. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I'm also going to give a shout out to your PI, your mentor, uh, Dr. Rebecca Main, who's also here with us. Thank you for joining us. And thanks for, uh, for leading this, this way. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Now we have Dr. Mukherjee here. He just discussed the new practice management guideline regarding rib fractures. What was the focus of your study? So we were focusing on the non-operative management of elderly patients with rib fractures, especially multiple rib fractures. This is a challenging population. We decided to split up the operative and non-operative management. So we didn't discuss anything related to rib plating, but we did decide to focus on things like pain control, incentive spirometry, which patient should be considered for ICU admission, and then the use of other adjuncts for pain control, such as ketamine, epidurals, and other types of local regional anesthesia. I know your group had no recommendations for a couple of those questions. Tell me about the ones that we could make a strong recommendation. Yeah, so we did offer a strong recommendation for the use of incentive spirometry for a couple of reasons. Some of the evidence uh, supporting the use of incentive spirometry was not super high quality evidence, but it does help highlight the fact that incentive spirometry performance can help sort out the patients that are at higher risk of doing worse. And so Incentive spirometry is often incorporated into other protocols, like which patient should go to the ICU, which patient should be considered for other modalities, such as non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, uh, and so forth. And also, uh, incentive spirometry has nearly no risk and uh, yields useful information, uh, and also involves the patient in the process. So we felt that incentive spirometry was highly useful and should be recommended. We also suggested the use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in selected patients, um, meaning that if patients are being treated with face mask or nasal cannula, their pain is controlled and they're continuing to have respiratory distress, how can we better treat that respiratory distress? One option is to go straight to endotracheal intubation. The second option is to attempt non-invasive positive pressure ventilation with either a, either BiPAP or a high-flow nasal cannula. And we suggested that this, this be done in patients where they're awake, they can protect their airway, and they don't have severe head injuries and are at risk for aspiration. So that's a suggestion that we made in terms of trying non-invasive positive pressure ventilation first before going straight to endotracheal intubation. You really summarized the kind of the clinical application at the end very well there. What of the questions that were unanswered would you be most keen on trying to answer you know, as an organization next? I think a couple of things. So we really need a good answer about the procedural roles of epidurals and other types of local regional anesthetics compared against the best non-invasive stuff that we have, meaning multimodal pain control, Tylenol, NSAIDs, GABAergic agents, really comparing um, the current modern management of uh, pain in these patients with the procedural um, aspect. And then we also, we also, I think, do need an answer about things like ketamine and lidocaine. We did not address lidocaine in this manuscript, um, largely because there's a paucity of evidence. So I think we need more information on this. Um, 
ketamine uh, has some advantages and disadvantages, as those of us that have used it are aware. And lidocaine also has a big upside in, in terms of safety and the lack of CNS um, side effects and delirium and PTSD uh, and, and those sorts of things. So if I had to highlight a couple of things, it would really be comparing today's management of pain non-procedurally, procedurally, and with other adjuncts like ketamine and lidocaine. Tell me about the body of evidence that went into the practice management guidelines. Would you say that it was pretty strong, uh, weak, or what was your opinion? Dr. Bernard made a really interesting comment um, after I finished my talk, which was that reviewing all this data doesn't yield a lot of conclusions, uh, surprisingly. And so we need to kind of focus our efforts on answering some of these questions with good, high-quality, randomized controlled trials. Now, in the process of writing a guideline, the guideline is based on the evidence that's out there, and we're kind of stuck with whatever evidence is out there, whether it's good or bad, old or new, um, high or low quality. So in this case, we're trying to synthesize the best evidence that we have available now. And that serves two purposes. One is to try to improve our treatment of patients today and tomorrow. But the second is to highlight what some of the areas for improvement are in our literature so that we can highlight those areas for investigators that are going to go out and do studies, uh, including multi-center studies um, that are sponsored through EAST. Thank you so much. It really seems like from the audience poll that you're going to change some people's practice here, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate it too. Thank you very much. And I'm interviewing Dr. Chad Hall, who is at Baylor Scott & White, who presented some of his work at OHSU when he started as a fellow there. Dr. Hall, thank you so much for your presentation. We're going to review a little bit about your presentation and some of the finer points of it. Can you give me a few-minute summary on what you guys looked at and studied Absolutely. Uh, we wanted to look at whole blood transfusion and how it correlates with severe hypocalcemia and trauma, and knowing that severe hypocalcemia has been shown uh, to be a significant risk factor for mortality in trauma patients. Uh, so we analyzed all patients who received whole blood within four hours of arrival over a two and a half year period since the start of the whole blood program at OHSU, where we looked at patients who only received whole blood and whole blood component plus component therapy. And what we found is that regardless of whether you're transfusing only whole blood or whole blood and components, was that the, there was still a significant risk of severe hypocalcemia. And that risk occurred around five units of blood products, regardless of what you were transfusing. That's so interesting. First of all, I, I think it stuck out that your whole blood program holds up to 20 units of whole blood at a time. Is we, that correct? That is correct. Uh, we have 20 units delivered weekly from the American Red Cross and may have up to 40 units in the hospital at one time. The hospital does give whole blood for all bleeding patients, regardless of trauma or uh, non-traumatic hemorrhage. Um, and so the supply can be exhausted, which may still require a transition to components, but even a massive transfusion uh, protocol activation, will that patient will still receive whole blood until it's, the supply is exhausted. So is it standard practice that when transfusing a patient at OHSU, they begin with whole blood, or do you have the decision to say, I'm going to begin with PRBCs or component therapy? Uh, if whole blood is available, uh, for in, in, whether it's in the trauma ICU or in the trauma bay, whole blood will be given and delivered from the blood bank. And do you guys have the capability to give whole blood in the pre-hospital setting at all? Uh, we are currently not giving whole blood in the pre-hospital setting, but our local EMS providers will give packed red blood cells. Okay. And then the one other point that I thought would be interesting is, had you guys ever looked at, or would you consider looking at, 
comparing whole blood solely compared to component therapy solely, uh, rather than the whole blood cohort that then received components afterwards. Yeah, we are looking at that data. Some of the colleagues in the research team at OHSU are in process of doing that. The difficulty is that since we've started the whole blood program, the majority of our trauma patients will receive whole blood. Uh, and so that requires a little bit more data mining to, uh, to get that data. Or maybe even looking at other institutes that may not be as advanced as OHSU that may not be on board with the whole blood therapy quite yet. That might provide some bigger numbers as well. Yeah, that's very true. It's a definitely an opportunity for a multi-institution study. Really exciting. I think whole blood is really cutting edge. If you could just give us kind of your 30-second takeaway point. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, you know, the ideal situation is that you would never see severe hypocalcemia in a trauma patient. So I think if you're expecting a massive transfusion or there's evidence of significant blood loss, I think early administration of calcium is key. And then again, regardless of whether you're transfusing whole blood or components, definitely by the fourth or fifth unit, those patients should have received calcium. That's great. Thank you so much for your work. I think this is also grounds for a lot of interesting new questions and really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm here with Dr. Ricard, who just presented her research about emergency hernia repair. Uh, Tell us about your study. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, So we performed a retrospective analysis of the nationwide readmissions database, really focusing in on readmissions after various types of emergent incisional ventral hernia repair. We compared uh, primary repair, synthetic mesh repair, and biologic mesh repair. Uh, And after our multivariate analysis with propensity score weighting, we found that although primary repair had the lowest uh, odds for readmission, synthetic mesh actually had a lower odds for readmission than biologic mesh repair, which kind of challenges a lot of our preconceived notions about uh, exclusive use of biologic mesh in the emergent setting. Do you think that this is a study that will be practice pattern changing, or we need to look more into what are other factors that may have contributed to the selection of mesh uh, placement at the time of the surgery? Yeah, I think this can certainly offer a springboard uh, into further evaluation of synthetic mesh in you know wound class three and four level contamination. But I, I think at this point, it's probably uh, there's a lot of selection bias that goes into choosing which mesh repair, and this was still a retrospective study. So I think you know, this could offer a springboard for more prospective studies using more macroporous type meshes, synthetic meshes in contaminated fields, but, you know, certainly exciting uh, for more studies in the future. And tell me a little bit about the readmissions database and how that might have caused some limitations to your findings. Sure. So the readmissions database, it captures a good amount of the nation, maybe roughly 60% of all the states participate in this um, readmissions database. They have, you know, a broad breadth of information, but in terms of the the depth of detail about these hernias and about the condition of the patient, it is a little bit lacking. So, for example, it didn't give us the information about the size of the hernia or, you know, what type of synthetic mesh, what type of biologic mesh, or, you know, what mesh implantation strategy did the surgeon use. So all of those factors may play into whether the patient gets readmitted or not, um, but we just didn't have that granular level of data from this database. Well, thank you so much. A really thought-provoking study, and I look forward to what you do in the future. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm here with Dr. Megan Quintana from George Washington University Center for Trauma and Critical Care, and she just finished presenting a paper uh, entitled Cresting Mortality, Defining a Plateau and Ongoing Massive Transfusion. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the study and, and what you found? 
Absolutely. So I think now more than ever, we really need to be thinking about resource utilization. And with the shortage that exists in blood banks nationwide at this point in time after the pandemic and everything, uh, we really need to be considering when we're transfusing and when to continue ongoing transfusion. So we were extremely interested in looking at populations receiving massive transfusion protocol, understanding that you know it's widely accepted that we do believe blood resuscitation is appropriate treatment for hemorrhagic shock. And we know that from many reputable studies that balanced transfusion is definitely key. And so we undertook a TQIP database study in order to identify patients that were older than 18 and had received greater than or equal to one unit of blood. And we then looked at our primary or main outcome was in hospital mortality. But more than that, we looked to see if there was a point when these patients were being transfused where the change in mortality did not significantly increase or decrease. So we employed a very complicated statistical method called bootstrapping, um, where you actually can compare a really large number of patients in smaller kind of, we used deciles, and so we were able to compare each decile of units transfused to the previous decile and the latter deciles, and then we even extended that out a few. Um, but with some colleagues in Sweden that were absolutely crucial to this uh, statistical analysis, we identified that when looking at a four-hour time point from admission, patients after receiving about 40 units, both for an overall cohort and a balanced transfusion cohort, that's really when we see the mortality kind of plateaus. And so there ceases to be really a significant change at that point. So, you know, in no way is this paper saying that at 40 units we should stop. And in no way are we trying to say that this is futile or that transfusion beyond this would be futile. But we propose that this might be a good time point to almost take a resuscitation time out where all involved parties in the trauma resuscitation take a step back from the patient and the injury they're treating. And you think about your resources, what you can utilize, what you have allocated, and where you're going with your resuscitation and should you continue. So this is really a point in time where we, you know, we, we just sort of uh, regroup, so to speak, and kind of reevaluate where we're at with the patient, uh, essentially, is what, is what you guys have shown. Exactly, exactly. And that was really the four-hour data was that 40 units. And it, really, it didn't differ much beyond the, between the overall cohort and the balanced transfusion cohort. We found that it was 39 in the balanced transfusion and 40.5 in the overall cohort. Um, and at 24 hours, interestingly, it was 53 units was really seemed to be the plateau mark. So that's also kind of interesting. But yep, I just think this is a good time to decide, okay, what is your blood bank capability? And at what point during massive transfusion, because we all know the units can be dumped in a patient very quickly. And at what point should we all stop and say, is this a good resource allocation? Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us today. I hope you enjoy the rest of, uh, of East 2022. Thanks so much. I had the pleasure of attending our wellness session that was uh, entitled The Active Wellness and Taking Control of Your Well-Being. I'm here with one of our uh, speakers today, Michael Pasquale. Introduce yourself, where you're from, and just kind of summarize what you talked about today. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Michael Pasquale. I'm the uh, chair uh, for the Department of Surgery at Lehigh Valley Health Network in Allentown. My topic today was really leading toward wellness and talked about a lot of the initiatives that our network has put forth to improve the well-being of our providers. Uh, and then specifically looking at our Department of Surgery and 
you know, identifying areas through utilization of the well-being index where we could focus uh, improvement efforts. I really enjoyed uh, kind of all the data. And what I thought was really interesting was some of the stuff that you kind of proposed of what you did as a program, especially taking that data and then individualizing it, not only at large groups, but then even down to like certain age physicians, especially the younger physicians. Um, You notice that there was you know, some higher issues with burnout and uh, looking at their wellness scores. Tell our listeners just a little bit about that and what you kind of did for that, some of the programs you guys did. Yeah, you know, we identified several uh, subspecialties within surgery where there was a higher distress score. Uh, As well, we identified areas based on the time somebody's been practicing where there was higher distress. Two divisions that we found that were uh, high distress areas were trauma and our ENT colleagues. In talking with those groups, you know, in ENT we found that you know, we had just gone through pretty much a major acquisition of a private practice uh, group and there was a lot of fear uh, about loss of autonomy uh, with that group. So what we did was we set up uh, several scheduled meetings to really have them educated about what it meant to be employed, and we we saw positive results from that. With respect to our trauma program, they were on a productivity-based compensation model, and they were kind of on the, uh, the work RVU treadmill, and it was really impacting them because... As a trauma doc, they want to take care of trauma patients, they want to do ICU care, they want to do education and research. And, you know, the push for RVUs was really taking away from the satisfaction that they had in their job. So what we did was we met with uh, leadership in our employed group and we moved them to a salary-based model with a goals base. And then the other thing that we identified is that our younger physicians, our younger surgeons, tended to have higher distress levels. So we put together some programs uh, really aimed at uh, meeting with these younger physicians and talking with them about their professional goals uh, and, you know, giving them some strategies uh, and some resources to improve their well-being and decrease their stress. Excellent. Just kind of one last question here. Is there any piece of advice that you can give your a leader in the field, a leader at your institution, that what kind of advice could you give that somebody could maybe do something that could affect them maybe even starting tomorrow in terms of their wellness and um, their well-being? The one thing I would do is talk with your leaders, talk with your mentors, and share, you know, any issues that you have or any, any things that may be bothering you. I think a lot of times we're afraid to share Uh, feelings of distress. Uh, It's a sign of weakness, right? And I think that we need to overcome that. We need to get beyond that and we need to understand that we all are under stress and we all handle it in different ways. So I I guess the one thing I would say that, you know, potentially could help you tomorrow is to share those feelings and share those concerns and uh, talk with your mentors and talk with your leaders. Thank you again for uh, your talk and for this interview. I'm here with Dr. Jim Bards. Uh, Dr. Bards, tell us a little bit about your research. Well, Warren, thanks for uh, interviewing me today and asking me a little bit about our, our work. Uh, we performed a multi-center trial through the Appalachian Research Consortium on Trauma, known as ARC Trauma. It's for uh, level one trauma centers similar to us at West Virginia, large catchment areas with prolonged transport times. 
Uh, we were really looking at the impact of futile and secondary over triage transports within those patients. We looked at basically patients that left the hospital within 48 hours with either uh, either died without major intervention for futile cases or secondary over triage that went home pretty quickly without operative intervention either. We found 3% of all those transports were, were futile and about one third of them ended up being secondary over triage. I think one of the most interesting findings from our work was looking at the impact on EMS. You know, this was four states, uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio. So this was, you know, four different states with broad impact across those trauma centers. And we found that almost 70% ended up uh, using ALS transport, 10% uh, used aeromedical. So it's, it's a big, big burden on the EMS uh, industry. The average patient went 70 miles in 76 minutes to receive, I'm going to say definitive care, but care might, that might not have been necessary or at an urgent standpoint. So really from our standpoint, we look at some of the you know, options in rural trauma care. How could we use you know, telemedicine, teleconsults to save some of these transports? 12% of them are isolated facial injuries that went home the next day without any inter- uh, intervention. You could certainly develop a virtual face consult service, which would save these patients long, long transports and save EMS the, the extra time and runs that weren't really necessary. Is this the first publication coming out of the ARC consortium? This is the, the first one coming out of ARC. We have a couple other papers coming up, uh, one being presented in, the, uh, in a couple of weeks at the Academic Surgical Congress, looking at um, uh, recovery islands and rural trauma, how far patients end up being displaced. That'll be the next one you see from us. And then are there any other groups that have looked at similar endpoints like futile transports? Sure. There's some work uh, out of Kansas from their group looking similar futile uh, transfers. They saw similar results. Um, they had a little bit higher futile rate, I think. Similar rates of you know severe head injury being the biggest, biggest problem. Um, and all this, I think, points to the need in rural trauma to use existing tech we have to answer some of these problems and have, how are we going to stop some of these transfers. And we already have cloud-based image sharing service. We already have the opportunity for... Um, virtual consults, uh, there's certainly options to do this. Any specific weaknesses study are you recognized in your study? Yeah, you know, looking at it retrospectively, there's always some difficulty teasing out some of the finer details. Um, you know, there's probably some patients that, you know, even in a rural environment using 48 hours as a cutoff, were still probably a futile transfer before, uh, but we had to cut them off at 48 hours because we didn't have all the answers. You know, sort of our bias here is that it takes a little bit longer stones for family to come in and travel those long distances. So there are probably some patients that, you know, between three and four days that ultimately were, were essentially a total event. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I am here with Victoria Miles, who is a resident at University of Tennessee College of Medicine, Chattanooga. I was really impressed with your presentation. I find this very clinically relevant. Can you first start out by telling us the title of your talk? Hey, uh, it's good to be here. Um, So our title was Ultrasound Safely Replaces Chest Radiograph After Tube Thoracostomy Removal in Trauma Patients. Can you give us a little bit of background in what started this study? So our GME department purchased about 10 handheld ultrasounds and we wanted to do something to utilize those and we had seen the new literature that came out regarding foregoing imaging altogether after tube thoracostomy removal, routine removal. Our attendings didn't feel comfortable with making that abrupt transition to no imaging at all, which I think many of us don't. And so we decided to consider using ultrasound as an intermediary. But in order to create a reasonable and effective study to give us some good data, we felt that first we needed to get both a chest radiograph and an ultrasound after tube thoracostomy removal to kind of see how the two imaging modalities compared, at least at our institution. Sure, that makes perfect sense. So how did you set up this study? 
So what we did is after we got IRB approval, we provided a 30-minute ultrasound training course to all of our residents rotating on the trauma service. And we intentionally planned for the interns to be the one to perform these ultrasounds just to demonstrate the ease with which these ultrasounds can be performed. That 30-minute course, we developed that. We're lucky enough at our institution, our emergency medicine colleagues are actually contribute to the five-minute sono courses uh, produced by Core Ultrasound, if you want to check them out on the web. They actually contribute to, to those courses, so they help us design this 30-minute quick course that we taught our interns. So then, following our training of our interns, we said that after they remove a tube thoracostomy placed specifically for either pneumothorax or hemopneumothorax, um, that two hours after removal, they, they obtain both a chest x-ray and an ultrasound. The radiologist attendings that read those x-rays uh, were blinded to the ultrasound results, and the residents performing the ultrasounds were blinded to the radiographic results as well. And so it was a prospective blinded trial. That's excellent. And what did you guys find? What were your outcomes? So we found that there were 29 pneumothoraces that were identified to either chest x-ray, ultrasound, or both. 67% of patients had no pneumothorax identified by either modality. So our rate of pneumothorax was actually quite high at 33%. Or of the 100%, 15% of patients had a post-removal pneumothorax identified on both ultrasound and chest radiograph. An additional 12% of patients had a pneumothorax which is identified on chest radiograph. And 6% of patients had a recurrent pneumothorax identified on ultrasound alone. And that was a total of 29 post-tube uh, thoracostomy removal pneumothorax which was a 33% rate. We only had one patient that required an intervention after tube thoracostomy removal of those 29, only one, and they required replacement of the chest tube. We saw their pneumothorax on both chest x-ray and ultrasound, and the patient also clinically decompensated. So I think that's probably the next big question is, you know, clinically, what is your thought or opinion on do we need to follow these patients after pulling tube thoracostomies with imaging modalities. And if you think we do, would you recommend proceeding with ultrasound rather than chest x-ray? And what's the benefit of that? So I think for most patients, so those patients that are not morbidly obese, those patients that don't have significant sub-Q air precluding exam, if there's not a medical device on the side that you're trying to ultrasound, where you can't get a window, um, in the situations where you can safely ultrasound a patient, I think that ultrasound just gives us some extra cushion per se. You know, I think that at least from the studies we have available to us, that foregoing imaging of any modality is likely safe. We're at Tennessee and Chattanooga, a lot of our patients are up to three to four hours away from our institution. And so it makes me just feel so much more comfortable to pull the, the ultrasound out of my pocket, ultrasound real quick before I send them home. Absolutely. And you brought up a really interesting point, too, with COVID and the influx and outflux of patients, the need to kind of save time. How did you decide on the two-hour time point to provide imaging for these patients um, with the ultrasound? So with COVID, our hospitals struggled to keep beds open, as, as I'm sure many of you have can attest to that as well. So our group is of the opinion that recurrent pneumothoraces likely occur at the removal process as all these tubes were pulled when there was no air leak present. So they likely occur at the removal process and, and we were trying to get patients out as safely but also as swiftly as we could from the hospital. And so that two hour mark was, was chosen because we feel like every hour counts right now. Absolutely, and last but not least, unfortunately, uh, you brought up some interesting cost savings in patients who are not getting chest x-rays. Yeah. So. 
at least from, and these are, this was not, uh, the intent of the study was not to perform a cost-effective analysis. If you'd like to see one, there's one that was uh, published in late 2020 in Injury, I believe I'm referencing that correctly, um, which showed a huge cost savings actually with ultrasound compared to chest x-ray. In order to calculate our $9,000 cost savings for the 89 patients, so approximately $100 each, we only took the cost of the ultrasound versus chest x-ray into account derived from that injury paper. We didn't consider at all shortened length of stay, monitoring patients longer when these small pneumothoraces are seen on x-ray and that sort of thing. So I think it's a very conservative estimate, but you know, hitting almost $10,000 in savings for 90 patients is a big deal, I think. Huge. Well, thank you so much. This has been great hearing from you, and I really enjoyed your presentation. Awesome. Thank you. I'm here with Dr. Shaban, who was our fellow winner of the Orion's essay contest. Dr. Shaban, tell us how you became involved in EAST and if you had any strong mentors that led you to pursue this essay contest. Good morning and thank you for having me. So when I first started my fellowship at University of California, Irvine, became close with two of my mentors now, Dr. Barrios and Dr. Schubel. And Dr. Barrios uh, basically recommended, you know, I start getting involved and, and start looking into, you know, new job opportunities. And that's when I came across the East website and saw the Orion's scholarship and uh, essay competition. And I ended up uh, applying. And I'm very fortunate and very uh, excited and appreciative for having this opportunity to present. So you told me this is your first meeting at East and you got to present in front of all those people. I would tell you you had excellent delivery and your essay was truly moving. So uh, if you allow me to summarize, you talked about um, your third day as an intern when you had the experience of a trauma patient, uh, a young female that came into the bay and ultimately had ultimately had a retrohepatic cable injury and, um, and died from her injuries, but kind of your experience and how that inspired you to be a trauma surgeon. There was one paragraph that I found especially moving, and I was hoping that you would read it to share with the group. Absolutely. So um, here and is, is there anything else you wanted to say about that experience? Regarding that specific memory, you know, it, it was very unfortunate. Ultimately, it was my very first experience of exactly what trauma surgery is from the time she came in to, you know, unfortunately when we, when we pronounced her death. But then even afterwards when, you know, I got to see my mentors speaking to her father, who's a firefighter, you know, I, I really got to see all aspects and all the responsibility that, that the trauma surgeon has and you know, the, really, the buck stops with you know with the with the trauma surgeon. If you are not able to save that patient, they are going to die. And you know, it it really, you know, made it real. Especially like you mentioned, it was my third day, three days out of medical school as an intern, and you know, I'm seeing this you know very devastating injury, and you know that was my that's always been and. You, one of my main motivating factors of learn as much as I can, practice as much as I can, um, you know, see as much as I can, because one day I will hopefully be that trauma surgeon. Soon enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very soon enough. If anyone's hiring, <laughs> um, I will be that trauma surgeon. And, you know, that experience really made me think, you know, I need to be ridiculously prepared so I can, you know, hopefully save the next life. The trauma community is a group of true heroes. We want to save everyone. 
We save some, we lose some. We suffer devastating loss that we wish ended differently. But it doesn't deter us. It makes us stronger. It makes us work harder. It motivates us to keep fighting, to keep striving. We learn from our mishaps and utilize the lessons learned to propel us further to the next potential life to save. We never forget, yet we keep moving forward. To me, trauma surgery is the embodiment of my favorite quote by John Wesley. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Congratulations. It was very well deserved, and I wish you the best of luck in your career as a trauma and acute care surgeon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer, and make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, remember, all you need to do is look to the east.